You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. What a joy it is to be back with you tonight and a joy to hear about this wonderful testimony from Josh and his sweet wife Valerie in the Philippines, what God is doing there. I've had the privilege of being in the Philippines on, I think, three occasions. My first trip was in 2001, and I was in Manila. Josh, I worked there for a while, and then the next time I was in Baguio City up north, and I've uh, learned so much about the Philippines, love the Filipino people. I did, I did want to ask him a question. Can I still ask him a question? Okay. Have you, uh, I'd like to know if you've ever had balut. Yes, you have. Did you like it? Yeah. I fortunately was not, I did not have to enjoy the Filipino delicacy of balut. Now, you need to ask Josh and Valerie about that after the service. What is that? Go up to them, about a hundred of you, go swarm them over there and ask them what is that. Let them explain to you uh, what that is. God is doing a great work there, and we are grateful to the Lord for that. And thank you. You bless my heart hearing you, what God is doing with you. We pray the door will open back up for you all to go back as soon as you can. I know your heart is there, and I know how difficult that is. My son and his wife were missionaries in Egypt for a period of time. They wanted to be in Yemen, the single most dangerous country right now to be a missionary in is Yemen. It's the most dangerous place. In fact, there are no known missionaries there. Our Southern Baptist missionaries had to pull out, and my son and daughter-in-law didn't get to go. They were headed there, but the Arab Spring occurred, and they got diverted to uh, to uh, Egypt, and they served there for a while in Egypt. And But God is doing a great work in many of these countries. And uh, his my son has a great heart for the uh, Muslim people, and uh, he and his wife are working in that way. But God is good, and we need to be aware, those of us who live in the United States, we need to be aware that God is doing great things in a lot of other countries. In fact, in many ways, some of these countries are way far ahead of us in terms of their spiritual life, and some of us in our churches in our country have become a little lax and a little lazy spiritually, and uh, in fact, many of those countries, I've been to South Korea, and South Korea sent out tons of missionaries to the United States. So lots of things happening. If you knew what the world scene was like, uh, they tell me the underground church in China is huge and that people are being saved by the tens of thousands, even in communist China. And so there are many wonderful things that are happening around our world, and you want to be a part of it. We, want, we all want to be a part of it. So thank God for men and women like Josh and Valor and their families and what they are doing. I'm delighted you as a church are helping them and supporting them and standing behind them. Uh, may you do so. May God continue to bless and and uh, to work among you. Well, it's a great joy to be back with you tonight. Thank you for letting me be here. I had so much fun this morning. I want to tell you, Pastor, you've got a friendly church. Your people are very friendly. They have been very gracious to me already, the ones that I've had a chance to visit with before and after services and out in the parking lot. Uh, And so thank you for your kindness. Uh, Yes, I know I'm from Texas, and I appreciate you overlooking that and allowing me uh, to be with you so very much. 
I teach at Southwestern Seminary, as you know, and uh, we had a, uh, a uh, speaker, a preacher, come to our chapel a few years back. He came from England. He had that beautiful British accent. And uh, so he stood up to preach in chapel at Southwestern Seminary there in Fort Worth. And he said, I love you Texans. He said, I love you Texans, not for who you are, but for who you think you are. (laughs) Now, I'm not originally from Texas. I'm a Georgia boy. I don't know if you could tell that or not. I was born and raised in North Georgia, but I moved to Texas when I was 18 to go to college, and I've stayed out there. You know, Texas needs missionaries, so I figured I'd help them out there. And, uh, but, you know, everything's bigger in Texas, at least they think it is, and they want to act like it is. And so that's just the way it is. So thank you for that, for putting up with me and allowing me to be in the great state of Arkansas. By the way, just what I've seen here in Hot Spring, and it's been a, I, I've been to several different places through the years and preached in different places in Arkansas, and I've been very grateful for that. But I'll tell you, being up here again just since uh, yesterday at 4 o'clock when I arrived, to this point right here, just a little over 24 hours, almost thou persuadest me to move to Arkansas. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Today in Dallas, uh, where I live, uh, it was uh, 97 degrees today in Dallas, but it was only about 79 here, which is still probably a little unseasonably warm, but what beautiful day yesterday and today, what beautiful weather, what beautiful country. And so it's a joy and privilege to be with you. Everybody has a favorite book in the Bible. Mine is Hebrews. So I want you to join me in Hebrews chapter 1, the prologue to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And I want us to talk tonight about the seven wonders of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And while you're turning and finding your place there, you are remembering the prayer that Scott reminded you about that we are praying, Lord... Do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. What does God want to do through Gospel Lighthouse, Gospel Light Baptist Church? What does God want to do? Would it surprise you if I told you I know the answer to that question? This is only my second service, but I already know the answer to that question. Here's the answer. What does God want to do in your church? A whole lot more than he's ever done before. Isn't that true? Isn't that right? What does God want to do? He's done great things in your church. You have a wonderful legacy. But what does God want to do? A whole lot more than he's ever done before. Now, if nothing is hindering him, then where is the problem? Lord, do anything in me you need to do. Deal with my pride. Deal with my anger. Deal with my unforgiveness. Deal with my bitterness. Deal with my spiritual uh, laziness. Lord, do anything in me you need to do. In order to do everything through me you want to do. You know, the key to the Christian life is just keeping your eyes on Jesus. Let's talk about him and magnify him and lift him up tonight from the prologue of the book of Hebrews. I'll read through verse 3. Verse 4 is a part of it, but we'll not have time to get through verse 4, so we're going to deal only with the first three verses. But follow with me in in your copy of the word of the living God. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, and he sustains all things by his powerful word, Having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What Shakespeare is to playwrights, the Mississippi to Rivers and Westminster Abbey to cathedrals, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is to all of the New Testament. From high atop this spiritual Mount Everest, we are able to look out over all that God is doing from creation to consummation, and at the center, at the heart, at the apex, at the pinnacle of it all, is Jesus Christ. God has spoken His final word in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken. God is a God who speaks. All you need to do is go to the very first chapter of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, ten times do you read, and God said... And when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, worlds leap into existence. God said, exist light, and light existed. That's how it reads literally in the Hebrew text. Exist light, God said, and light existed. This is the God who communicates. God is a God who communicates. He is a God who speaks. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. God is a speaking, communicating God. Now the heavens declare the glory of God. But the heavens can't tell you what Christ was doing on the cross when he died for your sins. History tells us about the sovereignty of God. But history uninterpreted can't explain to you what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross for your sins and mine and the sins of the world. Our conscience bears witness to the morality of God. But your conscience, unaided, cannot explain to you who Christ is and what he was doing when he died on the cross for your sin. You see, actually the universe, history, and even our conscience is one giant universal hieroglyph until you have God's Rosetta Stone, Jesus. Jesus is the key to it all. God spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken unto us by his son, Jesus. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. If I want to know you and you want to know me, what do we do? Well, we have that gift of God called speech, communication. We have the ability to communicate. Speech is that vehicle of revelation. God reveals himself to us through Christ, and it's a vehicle of communication. We are able to communicate with God and he with us because God is a God who speaks. Unless God speaks, you would never know him. Unless God chooses to reveal himself to you, you would never find your way and feel your way to God. You would not have the capacity to do that. But God, desiring that we might know him and fellowship with him, in spite of our sin, God reaches down through Christ and he reveals himself to us and he communicates with us. He talks to us. 
You know, communication can be garbled at one of two places. It can be garbled at the source, or it can be garbled on the receiving end, right? The source or on the receiving end. One of my favorite stories of Franklin Roosevelt when he was president is he used to get so tired, he said, of of, uh, being a part of those interminably long receiving lines, you know, where people would come. And he discovered something. He discovered that as he would speak to people, they were so awed being in the presence of the President of the United States that they really seldom paid much attention to what he said. And so one time, he conducted an experiment. As people came through the receiving line, he leaned over and mumbled, I murdered my grandmother this morning. I murdered my grandmother this morning. I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so people were coming through the line, and he would just lean over and sort of mumble that. And to his amazement, nobody, they couldn't, they weren't paying much attention. They were just over, and they were saying things like, wonderful, Mr. President. Oh, bless God, Mr. President. We're praying for you, Mr. President. And finally, one of the, toward the tail end of the line, the ambassador from Bolivia came through and apparently understood what the president said. Dr. President Roosevelt leaned over and mumbled, I murdered my grandmother this morning, to which the ambassador to Bolivia leaned forward and whispered into the president's ear, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) Speech can be garbled at the source or on the receiving end. Ladies and gentlemen, when God speaks, he speaks with perfect clarity and he does not stutter. When God speaks... He is perfectly clear. So if there is any problem on the receiving end or any problem in the communication of God to you and me, it's on our end where we get things confused and garbled, maybe because we are not listening to God's final word given to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. Speech is a vehicle of communication. But speech, God's speech in Christ is a vehicle of salvation. Have you not read? God said he doesn't desire that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Jesus has come as God's final word, the living word, the logos of God, who came for the purpose of dying for the sins of the world, that all may come to know Christ. This is what missions is all about. Speech, God's speech through Christ is a vehicle of salvation. God desires the salvation of every person on this planet. If I mention the name Woody Allen, some of you younger people may not know that name, but anybody here, probably if you're 40 and up, you probably know who Woody Allen is. He's a comedian, an actor, and then a movie producer, and done many things. He is a man, they say, who has a very high IQ, but Woody Allen is also a professed atheist. So one occasion, this was several years ago, he was asked this question during an interview, the question was this, Mr. Allen, I know that you don't believe in God. I know you don't, you're an atheist. But I want to ask you this. If there were a God, and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? Woody Allen thought for a moment, and then he said, Well, if there is a God, and if that God should speak to me, I would most want to hear him say three words. You are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the heart cry of every sane human being on this planet if there is a God. 
And if that God should speak to them, the one, number one thing they would want more than anything else is for that God to say to them, you are forgiven. And the wonderful news of Christianity and Christ is that there is forgiveness through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's final speech, his final revelation. God has spoken his final word in one who is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's very interesting to me when I read Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, that there is both expressed here continuity and contrast. There is continuity and there is contrast. Notice the continuity is it's the same God who spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets. Do you see that? That same God has in these last days, verse 2, also spoken to us in his Son. And so now we discover that the same God who spoke through the Old Testament prophets, he is the same God who is speaking through Christ and the New Testament revelation. There is continuity, but there's contrast. Look at the contrast. Long ago, in these last days, God spoke to the fathers, our forefathers, but now he's speaking to us. He spoke long ago by the prophets. He used the prophets, but now he is speaking in his son. There is a contrast here between the prophets and the son. Now, I love the Old Testament prophets, don't you? I love to read them. Don't you just love the prophets? You know, they all spoke with different accents, didn't they? You have the lofty eloquence of Isaiah. You have the plaintive wail of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. You have the country accent of Amos, the country preacher, as he refers to the women in his congregation as fat cows. How about that, ladies? And then you have the schizophrenia of Jonah. All of these prophets, they were all different men of God. They spoke with different accents, different emphases at different times. And yet in all of that, it was the same God who was speaking through those prophets. But now look at it. God didn't say his final word was in the prophets. No, his final word is in his son. In the Lord Jesus. Now look at that. He doesn't say his final word is Jesus, though obviously that's who he's referring to. He doesn't say his final word is Christ, though obviously that's who he's referring to. No. He contrasts prophets with Jesus as the Son. All through Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as God's Son. He is the Son. Now think with me for a moment. A son presupposes what? A father. And by definition, a father presupposes a son. And so here the author is first rattled out of the box making a strong statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, we need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your best buddy. Jesus is not just another great prophet. Jesus is not some revolutionary on par with other revolutionaries. No, Jesus is the son of the living God. He is a part of the Godhead. He is one of the unique members of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there is none other than God, none other than God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus. 
Sometimes I think even we who are Christians have forgotten who Jesus is. And we have forgotten about his power. And we have forgotten about his authority when he said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Sometimes I think we forget that when all hell is going on on earth, we think Jesus has lost control. No, he reigns in heaven. God has spoken his final word in one who is a son. Far greater than the prophets. Think about the difference, the contrast between the prophets and the son. The prophets lived and died. He lived and died and lived again. The prophets preached forgiveness. Jesus forgave. The prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you. The prophet spoke the word of God. He is the word of God. There is a world of difference between the prophets, as wonderful as they are, and the Son, who is the incarnate member of the Godhead who took on human flesh to come into this world and pay the penalty for our sin so we can be rightly related to God. Oh, because of Jesus. Jesus is God's final revelation. And because of Jesus, there's an answer to your question. There's a solution to your problem. There's hope for your future. There's salvation for your soul. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is what all the the biblical writers are saying. This is who Jesus is. God has spoken his final word. Look at that. In these last days, his final complete word, God has spoken in Christ. You know, when I was a kid, I would do like probably all of you did. And maybe some of you who are kids still try to do occasionally you would do verbal battle with your parents. And when that would happen in our home, my mom would say four words, four words that were her verbal line in the sand. She'd draw a verbal line in the sand. And those four words were these, that's my final word. Now when mom uttered those words, If you stepped over her verbal line in the sand, to step over her verbal line was to invite pain into one's young life. And so you learned that when mother said, that's my final word, she means it. When God says Jesus is his final word, when God said neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God says Jesus is the final word, you better take him at his word. You better understand he means what he said because that is his final word. So God says, the author of Hebrews says, long ago God spoke to the fathers and the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken unto us by his son. And then the author says there are seven things about Jesus you need to know. I call these the seven wonders of Jesus. Hey, do you remember when we were in school and we took uh, ancient history and we studied about the seven wonders of the ancient world? Do you all remember that, right? The seven wonders of the ancient world. And you remember there were the, you've got the great pyramid at Giza. And you have the hanging gardens of Babylon. And you have the statue of Zeus at Olympia. And you have the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And you have the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. And you have the Colossus of Rhodes and the lighthouse of Alexandria. 
the seven wonders of the ancient world. Put them all together, and they're nothing but belly button lint compared to the wonders of Jesus. The first wonder of Jesus, the author says, is not only has God spoken his final word in one who is his son, but he is the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is God's heir. As the son, he is the one who inherits all things from the father. This is why the author begins here, because he's referring to Jesus as his son. It is normal that a firstborn son would inherit from the father, right? Isn't that normal? You know, my grandfather, uh, he died many years ago, but granddaddy had a Winchester pump shotgun, 20 gauge, that was made in the year of his birth, 1911. And I loved that gun, and he promised that to me when he, he said... When I, when I die, that gun is yours. That comes to me. I was the one who was going to inherit. I was the heir of that. You see, Jesus is God's heir. Now, what is an heir? Or who is an heir? An heir is someone who receives an inheritance. Now, notice that Scripture says Jesus is God's heir. What that means is that everything there is... In the physical universe and everything there is in the spiritual universe, when it's all said and done and God rings the curtain down, it's all going into the lap of Jesus. He owns it all. He rules over it all. In fact, he already does. He's enthroned in heaven. And by virtue of what he, who he is and what he did on the cross, God has designated him as the heir of all things. Now, here's what's wonderful. It's not said here, but in Romans 8, guess what? All Christians, that would be those of you who know Christ, every person who is a Christian, listen, according to Romans 8, is a joint heir with Christ. You know what a joint heir is? A joint heir is someone who receives everything the heir receives. So everything that belongs to Jesus also belongs to you and me because you and I belong to him. We are joint heirs with Christ. That's our inheritance for all eternity. We look forward to receiving that. He is the heir of all things. But number two, look at the second wonder of Jesus. He's not only the heir of all things, he's the one who made all things. Look at it. Also, not only did God appoint him heir of all things, but through Jesus, God made the universe. Jesus is God's agent of creation. When God created, Jesus was there. Now, wait a minute. Until God created the universe, the space-time-matter continuum, until God created that, there was nothing. Until God created the angels, there was nothing. Until God created matter, there was nothing. But if Jesus predates, if he antedates, if he predates the things that God has made, what does that say about the Son? It says he is not a created being. Angels are created. You're created. The earth is a creation, right? But Jesus is the uncreated creator. He was there from the beginning. Jesus didn't come into existence on the first Christmas. No, that's just his incarnation. That's when he took on human flesh. He has always existed one with the Father, fully God, with God, fully deity, but he became man. And so here we discover that Jesus, 
was God's agent of creation. Isn't that interesting? So we go from the end, where he's the heir of all things, at the end, we, we rewind, rewind all the way back to the beginning. And before there is anything else, before God stepped out from behind the curtain of nowhere onto the platform of nothingness and spoke a world into existence, Jesus was there. Jesus is God's agent of creation. Now, by the way, for all of you who are students today, this is not a direct statement from this text, but just by analogy or actually uh, by uh, inference and application, this is a statement along with many others in the Bible that is a direct refutation of both atheistic, naturalistic evolution and theistic evolution. The concept of evolution, I used to spend a lot of time in this. I was a student pastor many years ago before I was a senior pastor, and I did a lot of work in the area of science and the Bible. I have just an interest in all of that. And there are tons of evidence. There's plenty of evidence for direct creation. There's lots of evidence for that. Many, many problems with evolution, not to mention not only the biological problems, the the physical problem, first and second laws of thermodynamics, and a host of the mathematical problems now are insurmountable for evolution. That's why so many are no longer, they don't want to affirm Christianity, they want to affirm a theistic position, but they realize there are major problems with naturalistic evolution. Scientists realize that today. And so basically what I want to say to all you students here, just by way of quick application, this is a statement, a clear statement, that Jesus is the creator. And you're not here by accident. You're not here. Life didn't come by spontaneous generation. No, you're not here by accident. You're here by design. God has placed you here. Your birth, your life, there's meaning and purpose because of God, because of Christ. You are somebody. You are loved by a creator who made you. That's a wonderful thing to, re- to remember, right? <laughs> Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. And now I am a professor with a Ph.D., Is that how you think it all happened? My goodness, let me sell you some seacoast land here in Arkansas because that is not how it happened. So here we discover what? Jesus is God's agent of creation. And therefore he is before all creation. Therefore he is eternal. Therefore he is God. He is a member of the eternal Godhead. This is what the author wants to communicate. Hey, here's the third wonder of Jesus. Look at it. Verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact expression of God's nature. Third and fourth go together. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact expression of God's nature. First of all, he's the radiance. The word means the outshining of the glory of God. Glory, there's a $5 stained glass word. Glory, what does that mean? Come up and define it for me. Show me a pound of glory. How about, can you give me a yard of glory? It's very hard, isn't it? We use the language of Zion all the time, and then when we get put on the spot, well, tell us what is God's glory. Uh, 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 I don't know. Well, see, God's glory is all that he is, his attributes, that he allows to be manifested for you to see. That's the glory of God. All of the divine attributes of God that he will allow us at any given moment in history to be made aware of or to visually encounter as Moses did 
that is the glory of God. And Jesus is, look at it, he is the radiance of God's glory. This is the author's way of saying that just like the sun radiates light and heat, Jesus radiates the full deity of the Father. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. You don't make Jesus divine, he is divine. That is his nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact expression of God's nature. Now watch it. Here's what the author is saying. Let me me break it down. Think with me a little bit. Think a little deeply with me tonight. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. That within the Godhead, right, there's one divine nature. There is a unity within the Godhead. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. But yet we know the, the, the God is revealed in three persons. There's one nature, but there are three persons, three distinct persons. And you say, well, wait, three, one, three, one. I can't comprehend that. I, I can't understand that. Well, take a number and get in line. Nobody else can either. And by the way, it's impossible to fully explain the Trinity, but the Trinity is a revelation of God himself as to his nature. There is one God and three persons. This first statement, he's the radiance of God's glory, that emphasizes the unity of nature. But then he's the express image of God's nature, the exact expression. That's an indication of his distinct person. He is God the Son, and then there's God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This is what the author is saying. This is who Jesus is. Everything God is, Jesus is. An image, an image is made from a different substance than the original. Now, that may be a good likeness. I left my cell phone in the car, but I can show you a likeness of my wife. I can show you a picture of my wife, Kate. And it's a good likeness of her. It looks just like her because it's a good picture of her. But it is not her. Why? Because she's made of a different substance than what's on that phone. You all have a wax museum here in Hot Springs. We have one in Arlington, Texas, and the mid-cities as well. You go into a wax museum, and if they've done a good job, the likenesses can be uncanny. So we have Clint Eastwood over there in ours in Arlington. I mean, he looks just like old Clint. You expect him to step right out of where he is and utter the words, a man has got to know his limitations. You can just hear him say that. You can just hear him step out. It looks just like him. You can just hear him say, there are two kinds of people in the world, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig, you dig. Now you say, what is that guy talking about? Okay. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who love Western movies, and there are people who are illiterate and uneducated. Right? And so you just kind of put yourself in whichever category you're in, and all of these Of course, if you want to get educated, you need to see a few Clint Eastwood movies and a few John Wayne movies and so forth. Learn a little bit about Westerns, and you'll be fine. But otherwise, classify yourself as basically illiterate and uneducated. It looks just like Clint, but you know what? If you walk up there and touch it, it is a wax figure. It's not made of the same stuff that the real Clint is made of. Jesus is not like that. He is an, he's more than just an image. He's the exact representation of the nature of God because he partakes of that nature 
and that substance. He is fully God and he's fully man. He is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the only man who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother, who had an earthly mother but no earthly father, who was older than his mother and as old as his father. There is no one like Jesus. He is altogether unique. He is the son of the living God, full deity, fully man and fully God. He is the exact expression of God's nature, the fifth wonder. Right there, look at it in verse 3. He's the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. Everything there is in the universe is sustained by Jesus. He holds it up. He keeps it moving. This is who he is. All right, so get out your telescope and let's train it on the night sky. Go, Go ahead, get out your telescope. Let's train that on the night sky. So take a look at the Arkansas sky. I was looking at it last night. You know, the interesting thing about being in, out on the exterior of Hot Springs is you can actually see the stars. I'd forgotten there were stars. You don't see any in Dallas. But you can actually see them here. And you know, it's very interesting. We live in a solar system. We have a solar system. We're third rock from the sun. And we're a pretty insignificant solar system. In fact, we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And our solar system is a pretty puny solar system. Compared to the galaxy that we're in, our solar system is the size of a quarter to the North American continent, if that gives you any idea. And then our galaxy, a Milky Way galaxy, has billions of stars in it. They say, what, 200 billion, I think. And did you know what? That of those 200 billion stars that are in just our Milky Way, our galaxy is one of the smallest, puniest galaxies in the of all the galaxies in the universe. There are about 180 billion of those, by the way. You know, it's interesting that if you could proportionately reduce our solar system down to a football field, Earth would be, or the sun would be on the 50-yard line. You know where Earth would be? On the 46-yard line, 93 million miles away. Pluto would be on the goal line. And our little puny solar system, and we live third rock from the sun. And did you also know that uh, as we sit here tonight, we're actually moving at the speed of a thousand miles an hour? Do you feel it? Because, you see, the Earth's rotating, and the Earth's rotation is such that it moves, it rotates at the speed of a thousand miles an hour. And not only that, but because we are turning, we're also rotating around the sun, and we're rotating around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. That's pretty amazing. Anybody feel dizzy? Well, not only that, our solar system, along with all these other solar systems in our galaxy, is rotating as well at the speed of 187,000 miles per hour. It's pretty amazing. But hey, that's not the speed limit in the universe. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Isn't that amazing? Who holds all that together? Jesus does. There's one cosmic cop whose badge is deity and whose whistle is omnipotence. And he directs galactic traffic every moment of every day as he sustains a universe. That's who Jesus is. 
That's what he does. Now get out your microscope. Go ahead, get out your microscope. Focus in here. You got your slide there. Let's get our little drop here of Arkansas pond water and put on our slide and focus in. Did you know that there are 52,000 species of protozoan on the planet? In every drop of Arkansas pond water, you can see two to 4,000 of those species right there. Two to 4,000. Whoa, there's amoeba. Well, I'd know him anywhere. The way he's shaped. No, there's paramecium. You know, kind of looks like what the sole of your foot. We can kind of tell what he looks like. No, there's rotifer. Couldn't miss him. He's only a 1,000 cells. He's translucent. You can just see right through him. Look at those tiny little hairs around his little body called cilia. That's how he locomotes through the liquid. And oh, over there, there's euglena. Well, I'd know euglena anywhere because that organelle, that little dark spot in euglena, euglena is the only one of the 52,000 protozoan who has chlorophyll, and that dark spot is an organelle, it's an eye spot, and euglena can orient toward the sun and actually conduct photosynthesis like plants do and can create her food that way. Or with her little cilia on her corona, she can wave little tiny particles into her mouth and she can eat that way. Isn't that amazing? Who holds all that together? The microcosm of a drop of Arkansas pond water. Who holds that together? Who sustains that? The author of Hebrews says Jesus does. From the macrocosm of the universe to the microcosm of a drop of pond water, Jesus holds it all together. Time out. You get three and a half in a football game, so you ought to get one or two in a sermon. Time out. If Jesus can hold together the macrocosm of a universe and the microcosm of a drop of pond water, don't you reckon he can hold together your life? Huh? You think he can hold together your marriage? You think he might be able to take care of your kids and grandkids? You reckon he might be able to take care of your retirement in light of no matter what happens? You reckon he can do that? Just a thought. Just a thought. He sustains all things by his powerful word. This is who Jesus is. But i got to hurry on. Look at the sixth wonder of Jesus. Here's the sixth wonder of Jesus. He made purification for sins. What? Sins? Everything that he is and does up to this point is what he does before he becomes a man. But now... This Jesus, who is one with the Father, full deity. This Jesus, who's the heir of all things from God, who's the creator of everything, who's the exact image of God and the exact representation of his nature and sustains everything in the universe. What makes purification for sins? Sin 
Who brought sin into God's universe? Who's the guilty party? Well, let's ask the 52,000 protozoan species. Which one of you, paramecium or amoeba or rotifer, was it any of you? Euglena, did you do that? And I hear them with their little microscopic voices as they squeak back. Don't look at us. How about you, planets and stars? What about you, Aldebaran? What about you, Betelgeuse? What about you, Cassiopeia? What about you, Deneb? What about all of you stars out there? Which one of you, did any of you bring sin into God's universe? And in their cosmic booming voices, I hear them as they speak back to me. Don't look at us. Who would dare to bring sin, rebellion against the God who made us? Who would dare bring that into the universe? Well, take a look at the man on the podium preaching tonight. Take a look at the people in the pews beside you tonight. And take a look at yourself. Because we are the guilty culprits. The reason why there is sin, moral rebellion against a holy God is because of you and me. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. They plunged all the rest of us into sin. We have a sin nature that we are born with. When we get old enough to make decisions, we choose wrong. We don't always do right. We do some things that are wrong. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And sin must be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. God has every right to wipe us all out and send us to hell. That's what we deserve for our sin. Do you understand that every moment of every day, 24-7... With the seven and a half billion people on this planet, most of whom are not saved, that the sins of seven and a half billion people in one rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood empty themselves at the feet of the throne of God every moment of every day. Why doesn't he wipe us all out? You know that answer. Because he is a God of love who cares about his wayward children and who cares about his wayward creation and who has made the decision that he will provide redemption for humanity. And because of that, Jesus came into the world. He didn't have to come out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Only his great eternal love made my Savior go, as the great hymn says. He didn't have to do it. He did it out of love. He went to the cross for you and me, suffered and died for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. This is what the author means. This is who Jesus is, church family. Do you understand it? You want to understand missions? You want to understand what it means that there's a world lost without Christ? This is what it means. There's a God who cares about every soul on this planet, who died for the sins of every soul on this planet, who desires the salvation of every soul on this planet, and who gives you and me the wonderful privilege of serving Him and telling the good news of the gospel of Christ to people 
in Hot Springs, people in Arkansas, people in the United States, people in every country around the world because Jesus made purification. Look at that. He made purification for sins. That's the surprising, shocking thing. It takes my breath away when I read it. The one who is the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the one who's one with the Father, the one who's the exact representation of Him, expression of His glory, outshining of His glory, exact representation of His nature, the one who, like Atlas, holds up the universe on His back. Yet He Himself and He alone made cleansing for all of our sins. You want to know why you should love Christ, serve Him, give everything for Him, walk with Him, pray to Him, give your life in service to Him, whatever it may be. That's why, right there, because of who He is and because of what He has done. Young people, are you looking for something and someone to give your life to that's eternal, that's not temporary, that matters, that lasts? Give your life to Christ, give your service to Christ, and whatever God calls you to do, does He call you to be a teacher or a doctor or whatever the case may be? Does He call you to be in full-time vocational ministry? Either way, it doesn't matter. Whatever ministry you're in, whatever life work you do, you're in service to the King. And so make good use of it. Give your all to Jesus for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the lost souls on this planet, and for the sake of the one who made purification for sins on the cross. And then finally, number seven, the seventh wonder of Jesus. After he did all of this, look at it, verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on Friday wasn't the end. The grave didn't hold him, didn't stop him. He died on the cross, but he was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And he ascended to heaven and he reigns from heaven. Today, he reigns and he rules from heaven. And he is in control. Dictators are not in control. Governments are not in control. Drug lords are not in control. Nobody's military is in control. He is in control. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's in control tonight. You ought to love him and serve him because of who he is and what he's done. 1969, West End Elementary School in Rome, Georgia. Last day of the school year, the end of May. Sixth grade class having their end-of-year party before school that's out for the summer. Unlike the first through the fifth grade classes, they just got to have their little parties with Kool-Aid and cookies in their room. But no, not the sixth grade class. Because next year was junior high, it was a rite of passage. And so the sixth grade class at West End Elementary School got to go across town to Rock Ridge Roller Rink for two hours and roller skate and have the greatest time And also before they departed, there was a tradition at West End Elementary School that the sixth grade class would vote on and they would elect Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School. Someone out of their class, the sixth grade class. It came as no surprise to anybody that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. She was drop-dead gorgeous, smart as everything. She looked like Marsha Brady with brown hair. And it was just no surprise to anybody that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. But when the votes were tallied for Mr. West End Elementary School, it was quite a shock. 
because Mr. West End Elementary School turned out to be David Allen. And there was quite a shock for a number of reasons. Number one, David Allen was about the shortest boy in the class. Most of the girls were taller than he was. Number two, David Allen was not the smartest boy in the class. No, that would have gone to Paul Webb, who made a perfect 1600 later in high school, senior high school, perfect 1600 on the SAT. Nor was I the athletic stud of our class. No, that honor went to Brad Morrow. He was Brad Pitt before there was a Brad Pitt. And he had that arm. He was the football star. But somehow in the midst of all of that, when the votes were tallied, Mr. West End Elementary School turned out to be David Allen. We loaded the bus. We went to Rock Ridge Roller Rink on the other side of town. We had the whole thing to ourselves. We got to skate. Oh, it was a blast. And then there came a moment when the lights were lowered. And then they would turn the lights up on the multicolored ball at the top. And it began to spin. And it would throw those colored lights all over the skating rink. And everybody exited the rink. And there was a tradition that while everybody else was off the ring, Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School would hold hands and skate while everybody else was watching. Now, this was a tradition of which I had no knowledge, but to which I had no objection. (laughs) And so there we were, standing there, Terry, Little John, and me about to launch out. And I want you to know, In 1969, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have computers, we didn't have CDs, we didn't have Nintendos, we didn't have Segas, we didn't have Xboxes, we didn't have iPhones, iPads, iPods, or anything else like that, but we had Tommy James and the Shondells. Well, I don't hardly know her, but I think I could love her, crimson and clover, over and over. And so Terry Little John and I launched out with everybody else watching to the song Crimson and Clover. We got about once and a half, maybe around, and she said, well, this is awkward. They're looking at us. Everybody's looking at us. And suddenly, out of my mouth came the coolest words I have ever spoken to a girl in my entire life. And I said, no, they're not looking at us. They're looking at you. (laughs) And we skated until the song was over, and it was a wonderful day. You know, it was fine to know things about Terry Littlejohn. Now, she was always above my pay grade. But, you know, I knew stuff about her. I knew who her parents were. I knew she lived up over behind the high school and all of that. I'd see her out on the playground and all that. You know, it's one thing to know about her, but I want to tell you, it was a whole lot more fun to hold her hand and skate and talk to her. You know, it's uh, a wonderful thing to know about God, to know things about God. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's holy, he's just, he's love. It's, it's wonderful to know about God. But I want to tell you, it's a far, far more wonderful thing 
to know that God personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one Sunday night, just like this, in West Rome Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia, when I was on about the fourth row, right there on the aisle, Jesus stepped into my aisle and he stepped out and reached his hand down and he said, David, why don't you come and skate through life with me? And from that day until this day, Jesus and I have been having more fun. It ought to be illegal. The joy of knowing Christ personally and fellowshipping with Him, not just knowing about Him, knowing Him personally. That's the greatest thing in all the world. God has spoken His final word. One who is by character and nature so far above and beyond the prophet, he's the very son of God, whose love for you is such that he went to the cross with your name on his heart, and he paid the penalty for your sin. And for those of us who know him, he gives us the privilege of skating through life with him hand in hand, and one day he'll take us by the hand, and he'll take us home to be with him forever. What a joy! But until that day, let's love him, serve him, walk with him, pray to him, and tell his story to everyone because of who he is and because of what he has done. Holy and Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh tonight to be on mission with this one who paid the penalty for our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. Lord, teach us what it means to be on mission for you. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said,